Welcome to the So We Speak podcast. This is Terry Fakes, and this week I'd like to share with you some leadership lessons that I've learned in my career, some of them the hard way, but many of them from watching and observing good leaders and not-so-good leaders that I was privileged to work with in my business career. I spent the first half of my career in a very technical field, and I think leadership looks a little bit different in uh, information systems in a very technical area, maybe engineering, etc. And then the second half in sales and support and leading a large organization, and felt like I learned a great deal about leading uh, through several different layers. And I thought I'd share just a few things that I have learned in the hopes that perhaps they'll be useful to you. Leadership lesson number one, you learn at least as much from bad bosses than you do from good ones, but it isn't very much fun. You learn at least as much from bad bosses as you do from good ones, but it isn't very much fun. When I think about the bad bosses that I have had, I realize that I actually learned quite a bit from them. I didn't enjoy the experience, but I learned quite a bit. There is uh, a sentence, in fact, I believe it's the first sentence in the book of Anna Karenina, the great Russian novel, and it goes something like this. Every happy family is the same, but each unhappy family is unhappy in their own way. I've always thought that was a brilliant opening line, and in fact, I actually think it applies to our discussion a little bit. I think good bosses do a lot of the same things. I mean, they're good bosses for many of the same reasons. But in my analysis over uh, decades, uh, I have realized that bad bosses can be bad in their own individual ways. And I thought I'd look at a couple of things here. First, I remember in my technical days, in information systems, I was on the technical side of that business, and I had a boss that had almost no knowledge of what we did. These are what I call the bosses that, uh, I'm not saying your boss, certainly in a technical world, needs to know everything that their people do. That's certainly not the case. But to have a boss who has really no idea of what you're doing, and yet they're supposed to be making Uh, policy decisions, strategy decisions, etc., is very challenging. And I remember a boss that I had when I was on the technical side, supporting the sales organization, still doing some coding, who really had no functional knowledge of what anybody in the group did. And I remember thinking that was difficult for us because not only are you trying to make your case or educate your clients or your superiors, you really had a hard time getting your boss to be a good spokesperson for the group. I mean, one of the things good bosses do is represent the ideas of his or her team to upper management, represent the interests of his or her team, the ideas, the opinions. But a boss who's too uninformed about what you're doing can't really accurately represent your ideas. And I remember having a boss like that, and I remember feeling and thinking that it was holding us back as a team. And there's obviously these things happen, but I would have been happy had this boss wanted to learn more about it. Instead, he was kind of at that stage of his career which I hope I never get to, where he was what we call retired in place, meaning he was cruising out, unfortunately, the last seven or eight years of his career. 
Well, I had, uh, I remember this getting so bad one time. One of my coworkers, a sharp guy, uh, he began to kind of play this game with our boss, and he would talk to him sometimes, and he would make things up. He would go to our boss and he'd say, you know, we're not going to be able to do this. Oh, no, said the boss. Why is that? He said, well, you know, the framistat just isn't working the way it's supposed to be. And the boss would nod, you know, seriously like, yes, I, I hate it when that happens. And, and of course, he's making all this stuff up. And I remember when he came back, I said, are you so bored that you are risking your life just to have a little fun with this guy? But it... That's the kind of thing that happens in a situation like that is your team quickly loses any respect for you and realizes, in a bigger sense, you're being held back as a team because your boss doesn't know quite enough about what you do to be an articulate spokesperson for you. Second kind of boss I had, so first lesson I learned out of that is whatever team you get into, whatever piece of the business you're in, and I managed a lot of pieces of the business in which I had not worked, but I became a student of that. Don't be afraid to learn from your subordinates. Secondly, I had bosses that just didn't do much, and that actually didn't bother us very much because whether it was on the business side or the technical side, if the boss would just empower you, Things worked fairly well, but a boss who would do nothing but wouldn't make a decision, and this is the thing I want to home in on, is being indecisive is extremely difficult for your team. Now, obviously, you want to do your homework. You want to research things as best you can, etc., but I'm talking about a boss that basically uh, would not make a decision and would not really engage with the process. They just weren't doing much for you, but they couldn't. They basically paralyzed the whole organization by being afraid to make a decision. Sometimes that happens because people are afraid of being wrong, and sometimes it happens because they're just lazy. But I will say this about being afraid of being wrong. Anybody's decisions can be second-guessed by the future you or the future people who have the benefit of information you don't have. That will paralyze you trying to say, I wonder what this will be thought of. I wonder what my boss is going to think about this. I wonder what upper management is going to think about this in a month after this decision is made. That is a completely unproductive line of thinking because at any given time, You can only make the best decision given the data that you have, and you need to pull the trigger and move on. That fear of being second-guessed, because let me just take that away from you right now. You will be second-guessed, but the point is to be bold enough to make the decisions and then just take the consequences as they come, but no one can do more than to make a good decision based on what they know, and so bosses that won't make a decision for whatever reason really paralyze an organization, so be decisive when the time comes to be decisive, but the worst bosses I ever had really weren't the bosses who didn't know very much about the business. They might know quite a bit about the business. Uh, Or the ones that wouldn't make a decision. They might actually be decisive. The worst bosses I ever had, the most difficult time I had working for people, were bosses who were unpredictable. Unpredictable. Sometimes that was emotional unpredictability. For example, we used I had a boss one time where we would all tiptoe around and we'd say, wonder who's coming in today, Dr. Jekyll or Mr. Hyde. I mean, I don't know if he had 
fights with his wife some mornings or <laughs> what was happening, but he would be emotionally unpredictable. Is he going to be in a good mood today? Is he going to be in a bad mood today? There were also bosses who were unpredictable in even maybe worse ways, and that was I never knew what decision they were going to make in any given circumstance. In other words, I could have circumstances that were similar, but I really had no assurance that we would make a similar decision. So unpredictability can be mood or emotion, but it can also be the lack of a what I called principled leadership, meaning your subordinates know what your principles are and they get to the point where they can predict the kind of decisions that you're going to make. You become predictable. The best boss I ever had was probably the last boss I had before I made the move from the business world to church. The best boss in the business world I had was good for many reasons, but one is I quickly knew how he thought because he made it a point to walk me through his thought processes. So he realized that the better I understood his principles, priorities, perspective, I'm a big believer in perspective. We'll talk about that in some of the uh, further lessons. But he basically understood that I needed to understand how he thought about things and the perspective from which he saw them so that I could make good decisions on my own. That helped me and it helped him because he could leverage his ability I mean, one of the worst things you can have is the unpredictable boss becomes literally a choke point or a funnel in the organization. All the big decisions have to go there. And sometimes as a boss, if you're unpredictable, you'll be very frustrated because you don't understand why these people that work for you can't make good decisions. Well, sometimes you just need to look in the mirror and realize I've not helped them by being predictable, by telling them the principles in any given circumstance. What are the factors that drive your decisions? Be very open with your uh, key subordinates, particularly when they get to the level of having some experience. I'm not talking about your new hires here, but at some point you need to get to where you say, let's walk through this. I want to show you how I'm thinking about this. And we can discuss it, but you can learn then how your boss thinks about it. A predictable boss is somebody that you can live with, even if they don't know very much, even if they don't make good decisions. If you can predict what they think or how it's going to happen, you become empowered to do more. So one of the first lessons I learned was you can learn as much from a bad boss as you can from a good one. It just isn't nearly as much fun. Lesson number two, the higher you rise in an organization, the more influence matters and Believe it or not, the less control you actually have. The higher you rise in an organization, the more that influence matters and the less control you actually have. Now I'm talking about more into the executive ranks, but this is true in any case. When you are working at a level that is low enough that you can, quote, micromanage or you can see everything that's happening and you can be involved in everything that's happening, that really, uh, you get a lot of control in that situation. You don't need a lot of influence. You can rely on your positional power as the boss to see that things get done the way you want. But the higher up you go, obviously, you quickly lose the ability to be involved in every situation. 
Well, that's a completely different kind of leadership. You can't micromanage at that level or you become the ultimate choke point. And in fact, the organization will overwhelm you at that point. You'll find your stress going up. You'll find your frustration level going up. And the reality is, is you're simply trying to control too many things. As you move up, influence is the key. Influencing people to do things and get to the places you want them to go. Now, here's some bad news. For all of you control freaks out there, the higher you go, inevitably, the less control you have on how things get done. Because that requires a level of attention to detail that no matter how detail-oriented you are, you cannot do. I mean, at some point, it just overwhelms your ability to know all the detailed decisions. At some point, you realize that I'm going to help people understand how I'd like to see things done, at least in principle, but really what you're communicating are the results that you're trying to get, and at least put some curbs, if you will, on either side of the road. You're going to have to be comfortable with a certain amount of leeway in the way people go about things, and in fact, you're going to have to have a tolerance for a little frustration. You can always second-guess the people that work for you, meaning I wish you'd spoken to this client better. I wish you had talked to this person in a different way. But at the end of the day, you simply can't control that. You can coach for it, but you can't control it. What you can control is clarity in where we're trying to go and your folks getting you there. And so you have to be comfortable with giving up certain amount of control and relying more on influence. There are so many ways that uh, influence matters. Let me give you an example in our government. I mean, this is something that's in the news right now, but honestly, the federal bureaucracy has really been a problem for every president of all times. This is not a partisan issue. We hear it today called the deep state, meaning that the president has authority But the bureaucrats and the big bureaucratic machine simply won't execute those things. And that happens in a lot of ways. But in a large organization or even a moderate-sized team that you might have, you can be very clear about what you want done. But there are so many ways to short-circuit that and so many creative bureaucratic ways to short-circuit that. Uh, What I call bureaucratic obstruction. For example, one classic technique is called slow playing uh, the decision. In other words, your boss says, we want to do this, and you just don't agree. And you're thinking, you know, I'll wait this, this uh, guy or this girl out. They'll probably get moved on in a couple of years. So I'll, I'll start doing just enough so that I'm not insubordinate. But if you leave it to my timetable... This project will never actually happen. It's slow playing a decision, basically only going fast enough to not get into too much trouble. That's what the deep state is in the federal bureaucracy. Is people, they don't just ignore it and say, never mind, I don't care if you're the president, I'm not going to do it. They say, yes ma'am, or yes sir, and then go do it so slowly that it doesn't ever actually happen. Kind of associated with this is a technique. I hope I'm not training you in techniques and how to undermine your boss here, but this is a fascinating area. The art of bureaucratic obstruction using process. Processes can be your friend and processes can be your worst enemy. 
Bureaucrats love to say, we are absolutely carrying out your instructions. Now, you understand, of course, that our HR processes require that this is going to take a month, and that's going to take a month, and that's going to take another month. And, oh, by the way, our bureaucratic policies would indicate that, oh, this has to be done by some other group first. But, oh, I'm absolutely with you all the way, but I'm obstructing you by relying on policies and procedures. I had an experience uh, early on when I was in a first, second level management position. I had a lot of union folks that worked for the people that worked for me. And there is uh, nothing more complicated, bureaucratic, policy-driven, process-oriented than dealing with unions. I'm not anti-union. I had unbelievably quality people working in our organization. It made us who we were. But if those folks wanted to slow things down. It was certainly an art in how to use union negotiation, union rules and processes to slow down the implementation or thwart the ambitions of management. It was an interesting thing to learn to uh, navigate. And your first rule is, not your first rule, your first inclination is, I'll just take a big old club and I'll use my authority and I'll hit people over the head. Well, once you've tried that once or twice, you realize, boy, hitting people over the head doesn't seem to work very well. In fact, back to rule number two, the higher you rise, the more influence matters. Influence matters by having relationships, being able to deal with people, being persuasive, making it so that people trust you by not pulling out the club and trying to hit people over the head. Everybody in this situation knows who has power, and both sides have some power. And that's something that I think you need to realize. Even if you are the executive in an organization, the people under you don't have much positional power, but they actually have some organizational power. Influence really matters. The art of getting things done, the higher in any organization that you rise, has more to do with mutual respect, friendships, and your ability to influence other people in a positive way. I'm not talking about necessarily political trade-offs. You do this for me, I'll do that for you. Of course, there's a certain amount of back and forth, but it's not really a sordid political situation. It's simply more of becoming trustworthy with people. If they think they can trust you, if they think they understand your motives, then they're certainly more likely and more willing to work with you. The higher you rise in an organization, the more influence matters and the less control you actually have. Lesson number three, for me anyway, the higher you rise as a leader in an organization, the less freedom you have, although the perks are nice. Let me repeat that. The higher you rise as a leader in an organization, the less freedom you have, although the perks are nice. Let me give you an example of this. I've used this example several times because, frankly, it just impressed itself on me. I was uh, regional vice president over sales organization, had uh, offices in several cities, and had uh, folks that uh, worked with me, helped me in various cities. But there were some people in the city in which I was officing. So I had a small organization there, maybe 40, 50 people in that particular office. Well, the people in the other offices un saw me through you know, various times I would be there or speeches or emails or that sort of thing. But the people who are at office saw me every day as I would 
go out to get a cup of coffee or whatever. I'd come in and out of my office and uh, visiting people, occasionally go around and talk to people. Well, I happen to be a really focused, kind of type A person. And so I came in every day, said hi to people, maybe got a cup of coffee, went to my office and began my work. I had things that I needed to do so that the people working with me could thrive. And so I worked on a lot of problems. I mean, at that level, if you don't have problems, they don't need you. In other words, nobody brings you uh, issues and says, hey, why don't you... uh, you know, go tell the good news to this person or that person. Let's bring you problems. And that's your function in the organization is smoothing the way and enabling your people to be very productive. So I had a lot of problems and took it seriously. And, you know, I happened to have a serious look on my face most of the time. And certainly I did at work. I wasn't worried. I was really focused. And I realized as I would walk back and through the office uh, out and they would look at me, they would you know, I'm the boss. So they take a look at you and see, are you in a good mood, bad mood? Well, I wasn't in a bad mood. I was never snapping at people, but I always had a serious look on my face. And it occurred to me after a while, they thought we weren't doing very well. They thought our numbers must not be very good, that I must not be very happy with the job they were doing because I had a serious look on my face. Well, Nothing could have been further from the truth. In fact, we were doing well. I was just doing my part of that, and my part happened to be puzzling over various problems at any given time. So I looked very serious, but it really hit home to me when I spoke with a bunch of them, and I realized, wait a minute, you don't think we're doing very well. You don't think I'm very happy with you. And I thought, well, that's that's crazy. And then I thought, no, wait a minute. That's not crazy. Terry, you're the one who gave them that impression. And so you really don't have the freedom to uh, express your negative emotions, if you will, or even the freedom to just be, you know, what you're thinking about at the time. You've got to think about a bigger group of people than yourself. You no longer have the luxury of indulging your emotions. For me, I simply started when I walked out of the office, I'd take a deep breath and I'd say, uh, you know what? How I act is how these people are going to take a tone or a mood of how we're doing. And I put a smile on my face. I slowed down the pace of my walking. I'm Like I say, intense, fast, get there, do this, go there. And I just slowed down. And I made a point every time I go out to smile and say hi to somebody. It radically changed the mood of the whole team. Well, that was my obligation to do that. It was my fault for indulging myself, meaning you can just be how you're thinking at any given moment. Uh, Making the right decisions, you know, is another way about that is when you make these decisions, you need to make them in as open a way as you can. Otherwise, you end up getting a gap, what I call a vacuum. If people don't understand what you're doing or why you're doing it, if you're not communicating with them, even in a casual way, on a regular basis, there becomes this gap of, of a lack of knowledge. And I found that that vacuums of knowledge are usually filled with distrustful emotions. It's just human nature. It's not that people don't like you. It's not that they don't think you're doing a good job. But the less they know, the more, the easier, I guess, it is for them to fill that with worry or anxiety or fear. In fact, we'll talk a lot about anxiety in some of the other lessons, but you as the leader really do have a huge impact on the level of anxiety of the team and of the organization. 
The other thing that comes along with losing some freedom, I mean, there are nice perks to moving up in the organization, but I'll tell you, working, not working hard is, is not one of those perks. In other words, as you move up, you have a lot of things going on outside the office. You uh, have freedom to come and go as you please. You need to think more and just type on your computer less. But one thing I observed is people don't know that. And so I thought, you know, I have the freedom to not be in this office all the time. Nevertheless, if I'm gone a lot, you know what the people that work for me are going to think? They're going to wonder, is he working very hard or not? And I realized, although I had the freedom to not be in the office very much, I actually needed to be there. Now, that was easy for me uh, because I we had a lot of really early conference calls. Uh, AT&T, SBC, the companies I worked with were very early cultures. We'd routinely have financial conference calls at 7 a.m. So it was easy for me to be there before everybody else was there. And making sure they knew that by just walking around, having a cup of coffee, saying hello, etc. They knew that, oh, this, this guy gets in before I do. And then there needs to be times when they would see me and they would realize that, hey, you know what? He's here a lot too. He's working just like we are. I know that sounds like a small thing, but you really do lead by example. There's certainly times when you get perks that other people in the organization don't get because you have responsibilities other people don't have. Nevertheless, don't take it for granted that they need to see that you too are working really hard. And so as much as it, as contrary as it seems, the higher you rise in an organization, the less freedom you actually have. You become... Uh, Basically, you have a responsibility to the organization that you lead, and part of that is leading by example. We'll look at some more leadership uh, examples in future podcasts if you think these are useful. Feel free to share your experiences or give some feedback with this. I'd love to hear from you as well. But I just thought that uh, some of the lessons I've learned might be useful to you or perhaps stimulate some thoughts for you to where you can become a better leader yourself. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.